Bienvenue à la Puissance de Trois Podcast. How is that, guys? It sounded Should fine. Yeah, good. Actually, it was un sac. No, really, it was un sac de merde d'un chat. <laughs> For those who can't speak French, including myself, that was Welcome to the Power of Three Podcast. Um, and the bit that wasn't in French is. This podcast is about three middle-aged, grumpy Scotsmen getting together remotely at the moment to talk about uh, a children's programme and take it very seriously indeed. And for today's show, we're looking at three particular adventures, two in the classic series, one in the new one, that has a particular theme. So, David, do you want to tell us why you have um, proposed these three adventures for us. Yes, the, the common link between these three, these three stories is that um, they're, they're all set in France or the TARDIS lands in France or, or whatever. I was due to fly out to, to visit a very good friend of mine in Paris a couple of weeks ago there um, before the, the lockdowns and all that kind of thing kicked in. So yes, one, one sad effect of the coronavirus pandemic is um, my holidays got scuppered. So to make up for that, as a slight consolation, I've suggested to the lads that we um <clears throat> we get in the mood. We're all sat here in stripy in stripy shirts with onions around their necks, wearing berries. We're gonna, we're talking about, we're talking about the three yeah three stories set in France. Right, that's fairly straightforward. Good day, Good day, sir. Yes, it is. I wonder if you can assist me. I'm bound for Paris. Am I still on the right road? You are. Splendid, splendid. I was beginning to have my doubts. I haven't seen a soul for hours. You've come a long way. Yes, further than you would think. Get on with your work. Nobody told you to stop. I have to watch them all the time. I don't even know why they bothered to put them to work. I know what I do with tax dodgers. Oh, so they're not volunteers, eh? Volunteers? <laughs> I have to watch them every second. I'm given a schedule. Finish this section by tomorrow, they told me. And if I don't... It's quite a responsibility. Well, it'll be finished, even if I have to drive every one of them into the ground. Yes, I see you believe in drastic measures, eh? I'll put your backs into it. Look as if you mean it. The sooner it's finished, the better it'll be for all of us. I'm sure you're very experienced at this job, my man. But as an impartial onlooker, I think I might have a bit of advice to give you. Well, I'll listen to anything that'll get this job finished quickly. Well, if you were to expend your energy helping with the road instead of bawling and shouting at them every few seconds, you might be able to get somewhere. Good day to you, sir. I suppose you think you're very clever. Well, without any undue modesty, yes. Now, would you mind standing aside? Now, show me your papers or something to prove your identity. I am not in the... I see. You can't prove your identity. Have you paid your taxes? No. Then perhaps you join the poor wretches and put your energy to better use. Give him a pick. Now get to work, skinny. You can kick us off then, David, by telling us what TARDISFandom.com says about the Reign of Terror. Yep, right, so... The Reign of Terror was the eighth and final serial of season one of Doctor Who. It was the first story to use location filming. The first to feature a prepubescent actor in a speaking role. <laughs> How did they check? And the first to show the full-size TARDIS prop materialising. Right, 
It also heralded the arrival of writer and future script editor Dennis Spooner to the programme. It is the only season finale not to have any science fiction elements whatsoever, apart from the TARDIS and its crew. Among its, sorry, amongst its most lasting narrative significance was Susan's assertion that the French Revolution was the first Doctor's favourite period of history. This was later remembered by Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat in their writing of the Tenth Doctor, who had a fondness for all things French. Um, currently, episodes four and five, The Tyrant of France and The Bargain of Necessity, remain missing from the BBC archives. However, the missing episodes have been reconstructed in animated format for the 2013 DVD release of the serial. 2013, that's ages. Kenny, what, do you, what did you think of The Reign of Terror? Yeah, The Reign of Terror is a strange one for me because it's probably the surviving story in the BBC archives from the classic era that I've seen the least. It's one of those ones, I don't know, I've just never found a real affinity bond with it. I don't dislike it, but at the same time, it's not one that I get overexcited about. I think it's maybe it's something to do with the fact it was one of the, the last stories that I, I actually saw, because back in the old days when you got pirates, Reign of Terror was one of the harder ones to get and through a source of mine um, you may recall it was scheduled for a BBC video release and then it was cancelled. John Nathan Turner did the links with Caroline Ford and then it just suddenly dropped off the schedules when JNT left the BBC as there was a bit of unhappiness with some of the work that he'd been producing. But um, I got well, a copy of this and watched it. And just... 4, 25, 26, you mean? No, no, after oh, after he departed BBC Video in the in the round 93, I think it was. Yeah, because um, he produced all the, the years tapes and the shadow reconstruction, and there was a lot of people that were saying, why are we getting all these John Nathan Turner produced compilation tapes rather than full stories? And yeah. as usual, the BBC Worldwide sort of listened to that and kind of, and I think, I think that's how it panned out, they kind of let him go. That's pretty much it. So I got a copy of this pirate video as it was, and it just, didn't it just I don't know there's some, I mean it's not as if it's badly written it's quite entertaining there's there's some good characters in there and um, in some stuff that wouldn't be out of place today um, in 21st century series the the character the jailer is as large as life and um, there's some great stuff with the doctor looking for coins in the road which is, is really good good character stuff heart knows superb and the regulars are all on form but there's just something about it it just doesn't quite gel for me maybe it's towards the end of that first season there's just I don't know it's almost like a familiarity breeding contempt with it from having watched you know the others so often and because this is the last one it just sort of no I just I just do not feel any affinity with it in terms of um, the animation of course it got an awful lot of criticism when the DVD came out as people thought the cuts were far too quick I mean it's absolutely it's no resemblance to 60s TV in that sense, but the, the, the camera angles obviously are very similar to what you would have got if they'd had a multi-camera setup, but it just cuts away perhaps too quickly rather than having extended shots. But I can see why the team at Planet 55 would have done that. I think the animation itself is beautiful. Um, the sh the, the face, facial shapes are great, the shadows on it, the way the characters move. I really, really like it. I think it's been done really well, but I know that I'm in a minority with that as people feel it was just far too quick and too modern the way in which it was done. Am I alone? David, uh, before we start recording, you were telling me that you found it quite difficult, surprisingly, to get into this. Yeah, I, I ended up, I've watched it twice in the last couple of weeks, and um, I have to, I pretty much have to agree with an awful lot, pretty much everything that Kenny says about it. I, I really like the animation. Um, it's always, you know, 
I can there was a, a lot of sort of moaning at the time about you know the way it sort of cut. Someone made a point of something like five cuts in the space of two seconds, which is just not how the program would have worked in those days. But it, it works very well. I, I prefer it to the to the slightly more sort of blocky animation we've had recently. But it's it's an interesting story because I think there's a there's a line about um you know they've landed in France. They're only about hundred hundred and fifty hundred you know two hundred years out whatever. So the doctor's getting quite good at nearly getting in and Barbara home. So it's it's quite good from that point of view. The thing that struck me that I kind of did register this time was it's very much like an episode of the time tunnel and as much as it's a lot of the the sort of period detail it's almost just like window dressing and there's cameos by you know famous important people like you know they meet Napoleon he's in it Robespierre's in it obviously but as a plot it's not there's not an awful lot really to it the first few episodes are quite they're quite laid back is the wrong word but they're quite slow moving and then the animated episodes it gets you know it's basically Ian the plot is basically Ian, Susan, and Barbara get picked up by you know the by the revolutionary folk or whatever, and then the doctor basically goes to get them, and they get they get involved with some you know some back and forth with the locals, and, and they get away at the end. But it's so it's it's not the it's not the most sort of high in intrigue of plot, but it's it's interesting sort of seeing that as Kenny says, the regulars have all really settled in by now. You know, William Hartnell has got it down pat by this point, if you pardon the pun, and you know. Everyone else is doing really well, and I, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of Caroline Ford and TV Doctor. I think the stuff she's done for Big Finish latterly has been outstanding, but I think in Reign of Terror, she's really good. She's you can tell that you know she's realised that the scripts aren't doing an awful lot for me. I have to make this work. So Caroline, you could tell Caroline was putting a bit more into it, and you know I quite liked I quite liked Ian's little espionage sort of thing. The bit at the end when they have to pretend to be the bar staff that was quite interesting, a bit different to what what we normally get, but. As, as I say, it didn't, I had to put it on twice because I wanted to try and, I felt it made no real impression on me. It's not the most plot heavy of stories and it's it's at the same time, everything that has a lot of pluses, the sets are all really good and all that. You, you do get a real sort of sense that, that the BBC were you know, doing their best to try and reflect, you know, France as it was, but it, it just didn't really connect. It's not one, it's not one that I ever read the novelisation of either. I remember taking taking the book with me to France with the school in 1988 and not reading it. <laughs> I, I, it's strange. I probably enjoyed it a lot more than either of you two. Um, maybe it's because I had just started my first ever rewatch of everything from the very beginning. And it was not exactly the first historical, but it was, you know, it was one of the, one of the first historicals. And I, I just remember really enjoying uh, the characterization. I thought the humour was great. You're right, Hartnell, who I don't have an awful lot of time for. I think he is a bit overrated, frankly. Uh, but I thought he was brilliant in this, um, particularly when I've got a body double of him walking through the French countryside. Um, <laughs> and the animation, I think they did a terrific job. What strikes me, though, just in reflection, is that this is one of the few adventures where the TARDIS crew arrive and they create their own drama. Normally when they arrive anywhere, there is a problem that only they can sort out on behalf of the natives. And they have to intervene to, to, to make something happen or to rescue somebody or to, you know, to motivate the rebels into fighting against the oppressors or something like that. This time, the drama is caused entirely by the crew themselves. And if they didn't turn up, nothing would have changed. There was no problem that they're there to solve. The TARDIS hasn't brought them here to help anyone. They, they, they come themselves, they get into difficulty, they get themselves out of difficulty, and then they leave again. 
And I, I think maybe that is at the root of any criticism that it's plot light. Yeah, that's that's fair. I mean, quite quite a lot of the historical stories are like that. You know, we talked about the Highlanders before, and there's an element of that, the feeling that things would have gone just the way they were without. And I think Barbara Barbara has a line in episode five. I think it's in episode six when she's talking to Ian or the Doctor and sort of saying something about how um, she feels frustrated because they're trying. It feels like they're trying to stop something that they know is already going to happen. I think yeah. it's. I think they maybe make the point that history is bigger than the Doctor and his pals. You know. Kenny, have you read the novelisation? I have not in a long time, but I read it when it came out. I think it's, um, it's Ian Martyr who did it off the top of my head. I think it's, I mean, I think it's, I always remember it as being sort of interesting enough as it gave it of a, you know, it did set a, you know, a form part of the original Doctor Who intention to do a bit of education. So I do know a bit about it, but to be honest, I did gain most of my French Revolution knowledge from Carry On, Don't Lose Your Head, but maybe that's just me. Um, yes, well, that, that, is I, a, that is a fine movie, of course. It's, it's one of the best, absolutely one of the best. Of course, with uh, The Meddling Monk as well, it's Citizen yeah. B-Day. But no, I, I, just, I just, there's just something about The Reign of Terror. It, it's there, but it's like, it's like a DVD, it sits on the shelf and it's the DVD you don't take down. Well, what do either of you think about the idea then that if this failed to a degree as a Doctor Who drama, then it succeeded in as much as children watching this would have come away knowing a little bit more about the culture and the reasons behind the French Revolution? I mean, did it succeed in the educational side of things? Well, I think the problem is it sort of it doesn't explain too much about why it's happening. I think, you know, it's going on and sort of explained that... Uh, people are getting their heads chopped off. Actually, something that's just popped into my head is that um, I remember years ago winding up my dad saying, oh, why didn't you ever record some Doctor Who off air for me before I was born uh, from the 60s uh, with your cine camera? And um, he said, actually, one of the few that he remembered watching uh, at the time when it went out was one about the French Revolution. Yeah. So I'm assuming he hasn't got this confused with the massacre. Um, so there's, I do have a sort of an element of when I watch, I think, oh, my dad watched this, you know, a decade before I was born. Um, so there is a sort of, uh, there's, a, there's a sort of personal attachment to it in that way, but really not much else, I'm afraid. I mean, it's, the thing is, the writing's great. Dennis Spooner's got a great script. It's full of great dialogue, very witty, but it just doesn't have that je ne sais quoi, as it were, <laughs> to bring it alive. Very good. That, that's that's a good point actually, because Kenny mentioned the massacre. There, we're not going to talk. We're not talking about the massacre this time. But the massacre is obviously the other William Hartnell story that's set in a period of French history, and the massacre I think does a much better job of educating about you know the audience about what was going on in the country at that time. You know the, the sort of the re- religious sort of conflict that was that was sort of taking place. It's almost like the Reign of Terror is just sort of, the French setting is almost maybe just um, you know. Window dressing or French dressing, window dressing just to kind of hang a quite a basic plot around. (laughs) I shall show you what you want to know, my dear. I am Scaroff. Through me, my people will live again. I'm glad to see you are still wearing the bracelet I designed. It is, as I said, a useful device.
have to die, but then, in a short while, you will have ceased ever to have existed. Kenny, can you tell us what TARDISFANDOM.COM says about The City of Death? Oui. City of Death was a second serial of season 17 of Doctor Who. It was the first story to be filmed on location outside the UK. If one follows the suggestion in the short story, The Lying Old Witch in the Wardrobe, that Destiny of the Daleks featured the Doctor's TARDIS posing as Romana rather than the real Time Lady to feature the... That is a load of nonsense, isn't um, it? I can't understand a word of it. No, nor I. Um, the story marked Julian Glover's second guest appearance on the series. It also featured a guest appearance by former Space 1999 star Catherine Schell, as well as cameos by comedic actors John Cleese and Eleanor Braun. City of Death has the highest average viewing figure of the Tom Baker era, with a rating of 14.5 million. It also has the all-time highest rating for an individual episode with 16.1 million. However, this rating is somewhat misleading as the story was transmitted at a time when ITV were on strike and therefore it transmitted without significant opposition. Right, well first of all, I mean there are, there are conflicting, there's conflicting information about that uh, idea that ITV were on strike at the time. I have read another account that says that ITV actually returned to work before City of Death was broadcast. And therefore these high ratings were entirely merited. Um, did we know the truth of this one way or the other? My, my understanding is that ITV weren't transmitting at all when City of okay. Death was... I, I, know, I know from what I understand they were... They were they weren't transmitting for quite a long time. It was a couple of months, I believe. Is that right? Um, uh, well, it was a long time because I remember that's when uh, the Quatermass season uh, was broadcast on its first week when it came back as an attempt to to get the, the viewers back. Right. Uh, see, I just remembered the blue screen, effectively the blue screen of death of its age, um, being on every time, you know, when I get home from school. And, um, yeah. It wasn't a big problem because we didn't really watch ITV. I've got no memory of the of ITV being off at all. But when I was what six and a half, I think when City of Death came out, so not no memory. Five and a half, Dave. You'll get. Yeah, we watched. Um, we we were a BBC house. We'd been mostly watching the BBC anyway. I bet my grand and grandpa Bain hated it. They watched STV all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah, we so were. A, Tom, yeah. Oh yeah, we were a we were we were a Blue Peter rather than a Magpie household. That's definitely true. Um. City of Death, I mean, what's not to love about the City of Death? I mean, to me, this is the pinnacle, uh, irrespective of viewing figures, this is the pinnacle of classic Doctor Who. I think everything that came before and everything that came afterwards was less than what the City of Death is. I just think, if you look at the cast, Julian Glover is just fantastic. As you said, Kenny's first appearance since Richard the Lionheart in the, in the very early days and he is just wonderful. And to get an actor of that calibre, I mean, this is the guy who went on to star in Indiana Jones films. Um, and it was brilliant that someone of that calibre wanted to be in Doctor Who, and he's given such a great role. The, the science fiction behind it is just fantastic, going right back to the origin of the human race on this planet. Baker is... Oh, I mean, what can you say about his performance in this? It is just remarkable. There's a fantastic line at the beginning where, where the, the bodyguard throws him into the room and he says, "You, I love your bodyguard, he's so violent. 
Um, and it's and and he's just mad. And and Lala Ward is fantastic. Oh, incidentally, I was watching a very old. TV adaptation from the early 1970s of an M.R. James ghost story called The Ash Tree. And Lala Ward, a very incredibly young Lala Ward, is the star of it. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. I think the, the time travel elements of this are, tr are truly captivating and incredibly clever. This was, I think, you know, I think Douglas Adams, the late Douglas Adams, would be clearly quite happy. If, if this was seen as the, the archetype Douglas Adams uh, Doctor Who episode, I just think there is nothing bad about this. I can find no flaw in it at all. Or from Scaroth's mask. Yeah, that, that doesn't bother me at all. I think that was, that was a fantastic cliffhanger. Loved it. It's just such a memorable cliffhanger. You've got um, Mr. Bane Gentleman, who within a year would be playing a Bond villain. And then uh, next thing you know, off comes the mask and Tim, he's a one-eyed monster, which is just is brilliant. It's, it's the whole, I'm with you, Tom, I think it's, this is my favourite Doctor Who story of all time ever. It's so fast, it's so witty, and just, and just the, it's so quotable as well. You know, with, um, it's more of a table wine. Um, it has a bouquet. It's just, shall we take the lift or fly? I mean, we went to um, Paris on our honeymoon. And um, I just remember saying at the bottom to Jen, shall we take the lift or fly? And she just looked Perfect. at me and was like, what the hell are you going on about? In fact, I've actually, we, we, would, we went back with Katie for her birthday three years ago. And um, I got a picture where I'm wearing my fourth Doctor T-shirt from City of Death and recreating Tom's pose. And uh, yeah, just generally, it's, it's so much fun when you go there. I mean, particularly up at the top, bringing the top level. I could just hear Dudley Simpson's music. It was going in my head all the time. Um, and it's such a great score. It's such a shame it doesn't exist anymore. It's just, I mean, it's absolute perfection. Tom and Lala are just wonderful from the word go in this. Obviously, um, things that were happening off camera no doubt helped with the chemistry. But it's, it's such a wonderful, wonderful story. So witty, so fast. And it's no wonder that Russell T. Davis used this as pretty much the touchstone for the humour for the series when he brought it back. David, um, can I ask you, I don't know if you are a Star Trek fan. Uh, it's fun enough that's a subject we've never discussed before, either on, online or face-to-face. Or -face. But there's, a, there's an element of City of Death that is very, very reminiscent of the very last adventure of Star Trek The Next Generation, All Good Things, um, uh, which is all about whether or not the, the primordial slime on Earth endures the correct chemical spark, I suppose, to, to trigger the evolutionary process. Um, and, and that's kind of what All Good Things is all about, about whether or not you know, evolution actually does begin. And there's, there's a, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a, an identical science fiction trope in City of Death, which is all about the primordial slime and, and what gave it that burst of energy to actually start uh, evolving. I don't know if you've ever seen that episode of star trek um i saw it probably about 25 years ago so yeah, i don't i remember nothing about it <laughs> 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 to be fair to be honest um after all that sorry um my my big things about my what i like most about city of death is it has you know there's no other way of putting it as such a, a joie de vivre it's it, is, it has a real lust for life about it there's the brilliant sort of um the brilliant plot, you know, we haven't really talked about what, what, what it's about. It's basically about an, an alien who's scattered through through time and various sort of fragments of himself, and he and he tries to, to pull 
the human race in, in the direction that he needs to try and get back in time to stop his, his race from, from being wiped out. And one of the things he does, obviously, is he, he, um, he gets Leonardo, I nearly said Leonardo DiCaprio, he gets Leonardo da Vinci to paint, um, paint half a dozen Mona Lisas. And, you know, so it's, it's a real celebration of, of the human spirit and human achievement, you know. It's, um, it's got all that going on. And as you know, we've, we've, you've both sort of talked about how funny Tom Baker is, and like the scenes where he, he travels back to, to Florence and, you know, he's about to get, you know, tortured with the thumb screws. <laughs> That's hilarious. You know, his hands are cold and all that sort of stuff. But Tom, Tom the, the really good thing about Tom is he, he walks, he's obviously at the height of his powers. He walks such a, a, a fine line because, you know, for all the, the joking and stuff at the start, you know, joking about, my favourite line is, um, is three glasses of water and make them doubles. That's my favourite line. <laughs> but the, the scene when the doctor confronts the countess about, everything that's been going on, you know, in episode four is just amazing because all the joking falls away. He's deathly serious and he's, you know, completely believable in the same way that, you know, he's maybe not when he's being a bit silly. It's, the good thing about it is when, when, when things are serious, the jokes stop and, and he gets on with it. There's that brilliant scene when, he, when there's the Shakespeare first draft. There's the, we haven't really talked about Duggan too much, who's another a brilliant supporting character. We, I want to heap more praise on Julian Glover. Um, I had the privilege of assisting him briefly at a convention in Edinburgh a couple of years ago. He's a lovely guy. I mean, just he's he's so dry in his humour. Like the scenes where um, where he, you know, kill them, Herman, <laughs> and you know those two fools. You know, it's he's he's tremendous. It's really obvious that everyone who was involved knew they had a good script, and you know, were really enjoying themselves. Considering it was written at short notice when a gamble with time by David Fisher fell through, it's, it's a phenomenal piece of work. It just shows Douglas Adams could meet deadlines when they were whizzing by. Good. Well, Tom. Uh-huh. You know that uh, there is the biography of John Nathan Turner, JNT, the life and scandalous times of John Nathan Turner. Yes. You know that it had a working title. I did not know. The Reign of Turner. Madame de Pompadour, please don't scream or anything. We haven't got a lot of time. I've come to warn you that they'll be here in five years. Five years? Sometime after your 37th birthday. I am. Um, I can't give you an exact date. It's a bit random. But they're coming. It's going to happen. In a way, for us, it's already happening. I'm sorry, it's hard to explain. The doctor does this better. Then be exact and I will be attentive. There isn't time. There are five years. For you? I haven't got five minutes. Then also be concise. Um, there's a, um, a, a, a vessel, a ship, a sort of sky ship, and it's full of, well, you. Different bits of your life in different rooms all jumbled up. I told you it's complicated, sorry. There is a vessel in your world where the days of my life are pressed together like the chapters of a book so that he may step from one to the other without increase of age, while I, weary traveller, must always take the slower path. Who's right about you? So in five years these creatures will return. What can be done? The doctor says keep them talking. They're kind of programmed to respond to you now. 
You won't be able to stop him, but you might be able to delay him a bit. Until? Until the doctor can get there. He's coming, then? He promises. But he cannot make his promises in person. He'll be there when you need him. That's the way it's got to be. It's the way it's always been. The monsters and the doctor. It seems you cannot have one without the other. <laughs> Tell me about it. So here's what TARDISFANDOM.COM says about our next story, uh, The Girl in the Fireplace. The Girl in the Fireplace was the fourth episode of series two of Doctor Who. It was Mickey Smith's first adventure in the TARDIS after joining in school reunion. Sophia Miles guest starred as the historical figure, Madame de Pompadour. It continues from the events of its prequel, Tardisode 4. The episode takes place in multiple time periods as the 10th Doctor, Rose Tyler and Mickey Smith find time windows leading to 18th century France and clockwork droids use them to stalk Madame de Pompadour through her life. Doctor Who writer Russell T Davis described the episode as a love story for the Doctor. The Girl in the Fireplace was well received by most critics despite the time constraints imposed on the plot. The episode was nominated for a Nebula Award and won the 2007 Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation, short form. While working with David Tennant on Casanova, Russell T Davis researched Madame de Pompadour and decided to use her in Doctor Who. Another influence in this story was The Turk, an 18th century robot. In reality it was a hoax, but Davis hoped to give it a sinister past. Due to its experimental nature, The Girl in the Fireplace was shifted in the running order from second to fourth episode in the series. The episode is also the only one of the season to have no mention of Torchwood. The clockwork droids would appear again eight years later in the 12th Doctor story, Deep Breath. Much like the ones in this story, the droids became confused as to what their purpose was and began harvesting human organs, although the reason why would differ for the future batch. So, Davey, what do you think of The Girl in the Fireplace? The Girl in the Fireplace, the first, when I watched it um, the other night, it was the first time I watched it in a very, very long time. And I was, I was actually struck by, just by how much I, I actually really enjoyed it. I think I enjoyed it more than I ever had done. I liked it an awful lot at the time, but I very quickly, as a, you know, the next couple of seasons sort of rolled by, it became very obvious to me that, um, that you know, this, you should, you know, I say this, this episode's written by Stephen Moffat, of course, and, we all know that I'm at times maybe not his biggest fan. And I felt that a lot of the time what he was doing after this was repeating a lot of the, the sort of, shall we say, motifs and ideas that he'd kind of set up in his first story, the, in um, The Empty Child. And then kind of consolidated in this, the, the idea of, you know, non-linear narratives and broken machines. It got to the point, I think, in Matt Smith's second series when it felt every, every other episode was resolved by, you know, by a computer having malfunctioned or something, but I was really struck by this. I, you know, I'm I'm not one of these people that really really likes the idea of the Doctor as the romantic lead in the series. I kind of misses the point. But I was I was genuinely surprised by how how good David Tennant is in this episode because he hasn't been doing it for that long, and and he's just like I, I remember having a, an online argument with someone halfway through the, the third series of Revived Doctor Who when I said that I felt that David Tennant was the best actor to ever actually play the Doctor just from, a, from the point of view of his technical abilities. And he's phenomenal in this one. There's, there's other, you know, there's, as I say, there's ideas which that, um, would come back again, like, you know, meeting a character as a, as a child and then again as an adult is um, something that happened you know, with, with Amy Pond. It happened again with Clara. Um, the non-linear relationship was, you know, 
was the whole point of the, the River Songs sort of character. It's obvious that Mr. Moffat was a big fan of the book, The Time Traveler's Wife. But what I like, about, what I like most about this is just, as I say, it's, it's, it's Wee Davies' performance, but it's the, it's, it gives the Doctor, it's the sort of thing that they couldn't really, you can't really do with the Doctor too often, I feel, as a, as a one-off sort of, of the Doctor having, experiencing that sort of, um, that sort of loss. I mean, there's a line, there's a brilliant scene towards the end when um, Rose asks him if he, Rose asks him if he's okay, and he says, you know, I am always all right, and I love that line. I love the way he says it. It's, it's, it's the Doctor has, he's, he's put his walls up, and he wouldn't even let Rose in, and um, all the stuff, you know, all the the period stuff is is beautiful. The droids are, are a work of art. Um, I've got you know, got the action figure, obviously. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think I think because I was watching it for the first time in a long time without any kind of foregrounded opinions about Mr. Moffat's work. I think because, you know, I wasn't obsessing about how um, repetitive I found it. I really enjoyed this one. And I was sort of, I was actually quite pleased that I enjoyed it so much. The, the final reveal at the end about what's, why the robots have been doing what they were doing. It was just, it was immaculate. Yeah. Kenny? I absolutely love it. I mean, something Dave picked up on that the I'm always all right is um, obviously something that was also mentioned by the doctor in um, in the library in, at uh, the end of uh, the forest of the dead um, which again Stephen using his nice wee line that you can use again and again I absolutely love this one I think Sophia Miles is just incredible um, her performance as Madame de Pompadour is just fantastic and I think we would all quite happily run away with her uh, coming across with We'll come back to that strange comment in a minute, David. Continue, Kenny. Well, but uh, Tom, you and I have obviously got taste, and we would run off with her in a in a heartbeat. I think. Um, well, you'd, you'd yes, meet someone, a five-year-old girl, and then yeah, okay, sorry, I'm interrupting. I think the uh, I think there's there's so many brilliant visual aspects to it. The fact there's the the monster under the bed, we can hear it going tick tock, tick tock. An element of the crocodile from uh, Robin Robin Hood, from <laughs> thinking of um, Captain Hook there, of course, in uh, Peter Pan. Um, and the fact we've got, you know, something as simple as the revolving fireplace, which is a brilliant conceit, something so simple. And obviously it was easy for them to build in the set where they can just go from one to the other. Um, I think we've got David Tennant's in absolutely top form, considering this was, what, the fourth, fifth episode that he recorded. He's, he absolutely shines. And obviously there's signs of, um, Rose getting jealous when she sees how well the Doctor gets on with Madame du Pompadour, um, which is quite is quite entertaining to see. But of course, it sadly became a bit of a recurring theme throughout the season uh, when Rose got jealous. It wasn't much fun. Um, I, I just think it, it's so it's absolutely it's dripping with wit. It's so funny, and um, I, I just think and it looks absolutely stunning as well. Considering it was recorded in Cardiff and the surrounds. You could believe it was done in Versailles or whatever it may have been. Um, it, was, it just looks wonderful. And, and even the, the whole load of stuff with the horse is fantastic as well. Just have a horse named Arthur wandering around a spaceship. Completely ludicrous, but great fun. I think this represents the, the big difference between the classic series and the new series. And I think fans sometimes you know, do have a problem with this. Because I think when, when they made the new series, they, they clearly based it on the original series but they accepted that you have to have more character development and you have to give different motivations, modern motivations to the main character, which is why for the first time you've got the Doctor falling in love with people. That would never have happened in the old series. 
It wasn't necessary in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. I think if you make a new series from the, the, the first decade of the 21st century, you, that's just something you have to do. That's what audiences expect. Maybe not the fans, but it's what the wider audiences expect. And from a personal point of view, I have absolutely no problem with the Doctor being a heterosexual man. I mean, that's what he is. That's what he's always been. Um, uh, on this occasion, he falls in love. Who can blame him with Sophia Miles? Obviously, Davy has uh, different standards from, from normal men. I prefer, uh, what? Prefer dark hair. That's, all, that's the rough. <laughs> you, would, you would turn Sophia Miles down, would you? Yeah, I probably would. I'd send, I'd send, her, I'd send her out to Kenny's. You're a strange man, Davy. Um, but but you know, introducing this this new aspect of the Doctor's personality, where he's he is, you know, sexually attracted to women, uh, whether it's Rose or whether it's Madame de Pompadour or whether it's River Song. Um, I mean, it just makes him a more rounded character, doesn't it? I don't think that you, I think you, you, it's difficult to say. Well, he didn't do this in the classic series, so he shouldn't do it in the new series. I think that that debate is is, is over with now. As soon as they decided to bring it back, I think they had to, as well as upgrade all of the the production standards. They had to upgrade the writing, and they've they've done this just superbly. I, and as you know, I'm a fan of Moffat's. I think. This this had me almost in tears at the end. I just, which is the intention, of course. Uh, yeah. And I can't think of many of the old classic who's that would do that to me now. Maybe they would have at the time as a kid, but but I just I just this this had this took me hook line and sinker. I just fell for it big time. It's I mean it's without wanting to argue to argue the point too much. I think it's the idea of the doctor was always the doctor's role, the doctor's function. Is is almost like he's the delivery boy to get the to get the you know the regular character the identification characters into new and exciting situations. I think it gets a bit. I think it gets a bit dangerous and a bit. It kind of ruins a little bit of the Doctor's mystique to have him sort of you know bursting into tears and crying over a girl. It's, you know, <laughs> he, he always he always had. It's that Mister Spock like thing of being slightly detached from all that sort of stuff. And I think if he if if the girl in the fireplace had been the only instance that where they'd done it, I think terrific. But they kind of it's it's it, it's you know I always felt that give beef the companions up a bit more. You know if you want to do that sort of you know and it can only really be a sort of soap opera level sort of thing of you know relationships. If you want to do that, you know do it with the cat, do it with the, the the companions. You know I mean that be I just feel that it kind of detracts from the you know I'm not I mean not saying it should never be done, but I just feel that. Having the doc, the doctor as a romantic lead, kind of defeats the purpose of the whole series. That's why I liked Captain Jack so much, you know. Well, you of course you you can't have the the doctor always being the romantic lead. It's why you couldn't have uh, Peter Capaldi uh, being a, a romantic lead. Uh, but you could with sorry, he could have been a new romantic lead. <laughs> yeah. But you obviously can with uh, with Eccleston, Tennant, and, and Smith much easier. I mean, it's all about taking the audience with you. If the audiences can buy into it, yeah. And I and I th and I totally understand why long term fans have a problem with that, and I understand that. But I think just realistically speaking, um, they're going to have to, you know, just yeah. accept it. I mean, the way the way it's handled, I think, is 
is is a big part of it. Like I liked, I like, I, I you know, I liked the way that the the tenth Doctor and Rose relationship was done. But you know, as I, and I've and I've talked about this before, so I won't I won't labour the point. Towards the end of when Matt was the Doctor, it got a bit creepy when he was making comments about you know Clara's skirt being too tight and all that. You know, it was there was a there was a nice sort of you know it, it never got sleazy between the Doctor and Rose. You know what I mean? It felt like it was a very pure, genuine sort of thing. And Billy is brilliant in, in the Girl in the Fireplace because. You know, she's obviously got over the fact that she didn't want Mickey to be on the ship, which is obviously, you know, she's a bit annoyed in the school reunion when that happens. But it's, you know, it's nice how they're, they're kind of so gradually sort of sowing the seeds. How Rose is obviously concerned about the Doctor. There's the scene when Rose and, you know, Madame de Pompadour have that conversation about, you know, the Doctor being worth the monsters. And it's, you know, it's, it works. I think, I think it, if it's done well without being, you know, a bit gross and a bit in your face. It's it, and if it's well played and well written, which I think it really was with the Doctor and Rose, you know, no doubt about that. And you know, I think I think it's I think you know you're right. It's it's definitely something the modern audience would expect. But I think there's a danger if you, if you let it become a regular sort of you know yeah, motif no, for the Doctor. I accept that. Just then, um, before we wrap up, can I just say a quick word? Um, just to pay a quick tribute to Hamish Wilson, the other Jamie from the Mind Robber who passed away from coronavirus. Well, Hamish, I got to know years ago at the Rutherglen Reformer because he lived locally and he'd grown up in Campus Lang and we'd been to the same primary school, but obviously a long time apart. Um, and I'd got to know him quite well and spent a lot of time in his company socially, as well as interviewing him at a convention in Glasgow. Um, so no, we'd, all, we did a good, we'd always stayed in touch. Um, and then I found out uh, last weekend that Hamish had passed away. He'd got coronavirus. Um, and was taken into hospital, and sadly he just he couldn't fight it. So, very memorable part in the Mind Robber. I think it's one of those things you think, what do you think about the Mind Robber? Oh, that's the one that's got the other Jamie in it. Um, so for something that was only two weeks' work, I think he did a very, very good job, and um, I'll always remember him, and Godspeed, Hamish. Oh, that's a real shame. Absolutely. Um, I remember the, the week before um, Doctor Who came back in 2005, Kenny hosted a an event where he sort of we interviewed Hamish. Um, was it the Iron Horse pub, Ken? It was indeed. Yeah. Yep. Upstairs, Iron Horse, and um, met him then, and it was it was really lovely to see that he was he was quite taken aback at um at just how glad I think we were all we all all as fans were to see him and how you know appreciative we were of his of hearing his stories about his, his career beyond Doctor Who and and also I think he, he was genuinely touched. I think that um you know we were taking our talk through companions books or copies of the mind robber and getting them to sign them it's obviously something equally hadn't we probably all given it a lot more thought than he ever had and it was it was really nice to see that he was genuinely touched and appreciative that people were just so affectionate and just so just so glad to see him he was a really nice guy it's, it's, it's such a sad thing to have happened yeah that is a shame have you written a story about it kenny i mean is it the, the news outlets it's in, it was actually made this the front page of the Rutherland Reformer this week, and I did a wee tribute inside. If we can have that in the Power of Three website as well, I think. Oh, no, absolutely. Good. Well, uh, scan them, send them over, or put them on, put them on yourself. Right. Okay. Well, thank you for uh, listening this far, if you have listened this far. Um, Davey, I'm sure you'll get to France at some point once this nonsense is over with. I hope so. I hope so too. Um, yeah, get to France, Dave. Yeah, get to get to France. So, from me, adieu. Um, from me, it's Don and Wally Potage. 
And from me, it's bye-bye, Duggan. Bye-bye.